Uh, it is April 13th, 2014. The whole church world to be excited that it's Palm Sunday. And uh, Tuesday night is uh, Passover, Pasach. Wednesday, we will speak a bunch about those things and also about the African trip that uh, just happened and uh, upcoming revivals with Zeke Lamb followed by Fabian Gretchen from Iraq. Today, our message is called Leaving Succoth and the Curse of Miraz. How many of you know what the Curse of Miraz is? This sounds like a movie title, doesn't it? <laughs> Leaving Succoth and the Curse of Miraz. Turn with me to 1 Peter. We're going to be in the first chapter and the 13th verse. Father, we just ask that you would anoint the ears of the people, the hearts of the people. Lord, that you would carry me along by your spirit like a prophet of old. Lord, that you might receive glory in their lives. Lord, that you might receive the abundant harvest that is yours. You are Lord of the harvest. Lord, we ask that you would raise up from this group men that would touch the nations, women that would raise champions of the faith. Almighty God, we commit the service into your hands now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, here comes the holy word of God. Verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Prepare your minds for action. I think that the church is largely prepared for inaction. I think we're prepared to hear a message and sit on our salvation. I think we're prepared to hide in a church with a steeple and stained glass and pews. But the Bible commands us by the Spirit of God to prepare for action. Christianity is not passive. Christianity does not sit and wait. The Spirit of God in us compels us to move. You can't have the Spirit of God if you don't have movement. Air that doesn't move is not wind. And a spirit that is standing still cannot be ruach. It cannot be pneumaticos. It cannot, by definition, be the Spirit of God. God wants to accomplish something on the earth. God bless those people that had their strange fire conference. They believe that God has ceased from moving in the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, I don't speak Spanish as well as I would like to, sister, but I heard this word in Mexico, siesta. Siesta reminds me of their cessationist arguments. They think God has been on a siesta for about 6,000 years. I'm telling you, he is at work, and he's looking for a people who are prepared to do his work. He calls us his body, his hands and feet, He wants to empower you by his presence. The whole world's going to celebrate a triumphal entry today. You can't show, you, you can't celebrate a triumphal entry if you never showed up on the battlefield, friend. Be the triumphal entry of someone else. The triumphal entry of something else. The triumphal entry is when you get off the bench and get in the game for Jesus Christ. Prepare you as obedient children. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just 
As he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. We serve a holy God. He's righteous in all he does. This holy God demands holiness of us. So we've redefined holiness. We've said, you know what? Holiness is defined by what you don't do. If you don't eat pork, you might be holy. If you don't smoke menthol cigarettes, you might be holy. If you don't drink alcohol, you might be holy. If you don't show midriff, you might be holy. You're holy because of a long list of things that God never called holy. He calls it holy when we do the things he does. It is holy to obey the Lord out of a holy reverence, out of an inspired faith, out of a trust in our God. That is holiness. James 4.17 defines sin as the good that we know we ought to do and do not do. It says when a man knows the good that he ought to do and does not do it, he sins. Sin is the opposite of holy. We cannot sit on our salvation and claim to be holy because of all that we do not do. Holiness is when you're moved by God to do the things He does. Come on, let's speak some Hebrew today. Say with me, Ruach HaKodesh. This translates to the spirit of holiness. It's what we call Holy Spirit. It's not just a title. It's a, a description of His function. The Spirit of God brings you into holiness that is a reverent obedience for Christ. He will cause you to do the things that Christ does. He is the Spirit of Christ. Turn with me to James, the second chapter. Say there when you are there. We're going to be in the 14th verse. The right side of the room is there. Don't make me say what the left side is. All the problems come from the left, don't they? Relax, that's a matter of perspective, whether you're on this side or that side. The left coast in the... Yeah, let's get back in the Word. So are y'all in the uh, second chapter and 14th verse? Can you tell I'm excited? I love the Lord. Anybody love the Lord? Oh, Miss Jennifer, don't go getting all emotional in the house of God. He perverse reverence that mimics death. Which is why so many people get saved in mortuaries. I mean, the revival center of the world is the cemeteries, right? They're awful reverent. I think reverence is when you have submitted your mind, will, and emotions to the living God. Reverence is when you are thoroughly moved in your inner being by the power of His Holy Spirit. Reverence is when you care more about what He thinks than what everybody else thinks. Are you willing to be a little foolish for Jesus? The ninth chapter of Hosea in the seventh verse says the inspired man would be considered a maniac. I'm okay with that. I'm just fine with that. I don't want to just get along. I came with a purpose. You want to talk about a triumphal entry? When the power of the Holy Ghost comes in your life, it is a triumphal entry. You don't wave palm branches on Monday and kill him on Friday. Because his spirit's inside you. I wonder what... Yeah, we've, back to James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, 
If a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? Well, it depends on your doctrinal statement now, doesn't it? Not according to James. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes in daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Do you want dead faith? If we don't accompany our faith by action, it profits us nothing. It profits us nothing. Now, if you've been all tangled up in your theology, well, we don't work to get saved. Listen, that is a straw argument. A man who trusts God does the works of God because he trusts God. A man who has faith in the living God does the things that God does because he trusts him and God commands it. A man that doesn't do those things doesn't trust his God no matter what his lips say. Come on, say the proof is in the pudding. The fruit is on the tree. Saints, an apple tree can tell you all day long it's a banana, but it's a liar. Every political season, we've heard the same promises, right? Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Independent, they're all going to do better things for school. They're all going to make the government a better part of your life, whether you think that's more or less. And after election is over, you find out what you really got. You know, Christians are the same way. They think they've settled their election issue. You know, I had a decision at an altar. I was born in the right family or I'm in the right church. And now that the election issue is over, you find out what you really got. A lot of hot air and no real action. Come on, church. I don't want to be that way. James, he puts it to us in the strongest of terms. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. How are we going to show faith, saints? How are we going to show faith? What you do shows what you believe. Come on, ladies. You love a man, and he says he loves you. But if he doesn't ever do anything, do you believe him? I love you, honey. I know I spend twice as much time trying to slaughter Bambi, but I love you. I love you, honey. I just prefer to go drink with the guys, you know. I love you, honey. And that's why I come home a couple days a week and complain. And all the rest of the time, I'm. do you believe him? Do you think? That God's at least as smart as your husband. See, he knows insincerity when he sees it too. Church, I want to make our calling and election sure. I don't work to be saved. I work because I'm saved. I work for the King of Kings, the Lord of glory. You ought to try it. He's amazing. Does anybody love him here today? Turn me to Psalm 110. Maybe the most quoted psalm in all of the Bible. I want you to notice this wording. Be Psalm 110. We're going to start in verse 1. Say there when you're there. Why does the right side of the room beat the left side every time? Come on, Brandon. Pick it up, man. Pick it up, Brandon. Come on, y'all give Brandon a hand clap of encouragement. 
He was distracted by Stephanie's beauty. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord... That's an interesting conversation, isn't it? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus and the Father having a conversation. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Somebody notice God is not intimidated by those who stand against Him. Not even a little bit. He can rule right in the midst of them. Their lack of recognition of His Lordship doesn't make Him any less Lord. Even the demons believe there's one God. They shudder at His name. But it doesn't do a thing for the salvation of demons. And believing there's one God doesn't do a thing for your salvation either. The obedience of the nations is going to belong to him. Verse 3 is the beginning of our text today. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle. You know, in the ancient world, that was not always true. Well, let's talk about the ancient world of the 1970s. We had conscription in this country. People burned their draft cards. We had a whole hippie movement based on an anti-establishment policy. I see some of you sulking in your seats, you reformed hippies. You don't have to draft people if they're willing to go. You have to draft people when they're not willing to go. I'm not going to quote Credence Clearwater Revival Senator son this morning. But there were a lot of people that were unwilling to go. And the law tried to force them to go. Some were forced and some weren't. In the army of Jesus Christ, no one is forced. In the army of Jesus Christ, it is 100% totally based on your willingness. He has left the ranks of his army up to those who are willing to answer the call. This is interesting because you have a lot of people that wear the armor, have all of the insignias, but they do not show up on the day of battle. They say that they're willing, but they do not do the things that willing people do. Church, I want to be an army of the willing. Do you need a gut-wrenching video of our friends in Africa to know and to be willing to help them? Do you need to be plied and persuaded that the work of God is worth it to be willing? Or the moment that your spirit is regenerated, did you enter the army of the willing? The question was not, what does it cost, but that I will give all I have. See, there is only one body of Christ, and it is the willing those who are in love with Him, that don't have to be beat over the head by Him because they're His sons and they want to be like Him. That is the army of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 20. What an interesting Scripture this is. When you go to war... 
Oh my goodness, God's not on siesta. Now I like a good taco as much as the next guy. Look at me. But the church is so fat and well fed that it wants to be on siesta while two-thirds of the world is going to hell around us. We want to celebrate the triumphal entry with palm branches as if the battle is already over. And friends, it just begun. We only have the first fruits in the barn. King Jesus is glorified and is at the right hand of God, but he's got a whole lot of brothers out there who will be willing. They just haven't heard. Have you heard? Have you heard the voice of God? Has it spoken to your spirit? Has he moved you and saved you? Oh man, when you go to war, when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army, what's it say? Greater than yours. You will always be an underdog. Woe unto the Christian that has superior forces. You show me a country that has more Christians in it than lost in it, at least by their own profession, and I will show you a dead country. But you show me a Christian country or a country that has minority Christians, has Christians that are persecuted, and you see Christians that are at war, friends. You see Christians that show up on the battlefield. They face down tanks. They face down kings. They face down Caesars, and they won! Have you considered that 11 scared little Jewish boys changed the face of the planet because they were an underdog that God could work through? He didn't use media campaigns or Christian coalitions. There were no Christian bumper stickers or t-shirts. There was no KSBJ radio. And yet they did it because they went to war. But that's not what this passage is really about, is it? Don't be afraid of them because the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, would be with you. What is the basis of your strength? God is with you. This is the basis of your victory. It is the basis of who you are. Perhaps the reason the church is so timid is they are not sure God is with them. Let me see. I need the church lady in here for a minute. Who told you God was not with you? Mm, Could it be Satan? Could it be that you've played with Satan's toys long enough that you feel guilty enough, that you feel far enough, that you don't want to go to battle because like Achan, you're liable to destruction. You have the devil's toys hidden in your house. See, when you cripple a church with habitual sin, when they have begun to think that hyper-grace is grace, some kind of unmerited favor that is so great that God will make you be saved even if you're not willing to walk with Him, well, then you don't really have a reason for confidence on the battlefield. So you don't go. You build bigger churches and you hide in them. Pizza becomes the draw. Music becomes the draw. Your gymnasium becomes the draw. My pastor's better looking than your pastor becomes the draw. But us ugly Pentecostals, us crazy charismatics, we have a different draw. We say, look at all of the yuckiness 
in humanity, and yet God will work through this jar of clay. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, Hear, O Israel, today you're going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to give you victory. The officer shall say to the army, Has anyone built a new house and not dedicated it? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else may dedicate it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else may enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else marry her. Then the officer shall add this. Is any man afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go. At first glance, this may seem to be a reprieve from the battle. At first glance, you read this, you say, oh, look, God, he's so merciful that he says, look, if, if you don't want to fight, if you're scared, if this just seems too hard for you, it's okay, go home and enjoy yourself, and it's all okay. It's not a reprieve, friends, it's an indictment. It's that moment where you realize your house is worth more to you than God's battle is. It's that moment where you realize your job is worth more to you than God's battle. It's that moment where you realize that the wife he gave you to care for has become idolatrous to you and you care more for her than you care for him. So, well, why is it there then? God only wanted an army of the willing. He always knew that within Israel, there would only be a remnant who was actually Israel. See, not everybody who hears the word is saved by it. In hearing the word, you are not saved. It's when you become obedient to the word that salvation springs forth. It's when faithfulness springs up that righteousness looks down. God wanted an army of the willing. Oh, man, that we could prepare our minds for action. Not a bad idea to prepare your feet too. Let's go back to the 12th century. Go to the book of Judges. Say there when you were there. Now get to Judges 4. Oh, I love the holy word of God. Most of my Christian walk, I've heard many fine messages on Deborah and Sisera and Barak. But I found something in the depths of a prayer meeting this weekend that I just went, that's it. That's it. You were there, weren't you? Oh, it is so good to seek the heart of God. When you do, two things are going to happen. He's going to show you things about your heart that embarrass you. And he's going to show you things about his heart that inspire you. I hope we do both today. I hope his presence, I I actually know his presence is in here. I hope you'll respond to his presence in that way. I'm not going to read to you Judges 4. I want to talk to you about the principal players because you already know them. This is the 12th century B.C. Our main character in this story is 
Deborah. The Bible describes her in verse 14 as a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, and then calls her a leader. Deborah was many things, but first and foremost, she heard from God. She was a prophetess. Secondly, she was a man's wife. And thirdly, she led people. All that we could get our priorities right, saints. You want to be a good wife? You want to be a good husband? You want to be a good spouse? It starts with being able to hear from God. Everything in your life that is good flows from a relationship with Him. Every good and perfect gift flows from above. You can't get one without the other. If you walk in the light as He is in the light, you have fellowship one with another. In other words, when our vertical relationship gets right, our horizontal relationship starts to work out. Deborah had this right. I don't know what to say about her husband. We'll leave that to another message. Lapidoth. I don't even like his name. Deborah is a superstar. The fact that she's a superstar is not an indictment of her husband. It should be an inspiration to him. I wonder why there's not a judge's four and a half that is about his deeds. Maybe he's like so many American husbands. Maybe he'd rather sit back and let his wife do all of the spiritual lifting. Lapidoth. Not a pretty name, is it? We move on from Deborah in verse 8 to a man that some think is the hero of the story. His name is Barak. How about that? Barak is an insecure general. He's got his mama leash on. I'll go to war, mama, as long as you'll go with me. I don't know, Mario. Did your mama accompany you on your first job interview? She accompanied, my mama accompanied me to kindergarten. And she pushed me out of the car and she drove home. <laughs> if you weren't quite able to make that separation, men, you should have done it at the day you stood at an altar and pledged to lead a household. A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. If you couldn't separate in kindergarten, praise God, by the time you became a man, I hope you separated. If you didn't, don't blame your wife for resenting it. It's your fault. Barak is an insecure general, a poor leader. Oh, in the end, he gets it done, but he only gets it done because some woman is holding his hand. And she shamed him for it. She said, okay, Barak, we'll do it the way that you want to do it, but because of it, a woman's going to get credit for this battle. We'll come back to that idea here in a minute. Sisera, in the first few verses, is the general of a Canaanite king. Sisera has 900 iron Chariots. Iron is a symbol of strength in the Bible. He lived in a city called Heroseth Hagoim. In Hebrew, that would be more like Harosheth Hagoim. Do you recognize the word Goyim? It's nations, it's Gentiles, it's you people. Heroseth is a Hebrew word that means blacksmith. He lived in the enemy's 
weapons factory. He lived in the heart of the enemy's attack against God's people. Sisera represented all that the devil desires to do to you, to come steal from you, to come kill you, and come destroy you. There's a third figure in the story. comes from verse 11. You can put 11 on the screen. Now Eber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab. (laughs) Sounds like my relatives from Mississippi. Jobab, Janice Lynn, Betsy Sue. We all had two first names, you know. My my father-in-law, Hobab. The descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree of Zananam near Kadesh. What does that have to do with anything? He's introduced in the story in verse 11 for a reason, and we will come back to that. Verse 17 says something very important about Eber. Eber the Canaanite had a friendly relationship with Sisera. He was a part of the family of God. Hobab was Moses' brother-in-law. The Kenites became part of Israel and they traveled as a Semitic people group as a part of Israel. But this particular Kenite, Eber, that's the same name as the man from which we get the word Hebrew. I mean, you talk about a great heritage. He broke camp with the other Kenites. Oh, he was called all of the right things. He was of the right descendants, but he was friendly with the enemy. Guess who his wife was? J.L. So what we really have in this story is we have Deborah, who was willing on the day of battle. We have Barak, who was not willing on the day of battle. We have Eber, a Kenite, who was not willing because he was a compromiser. And we have J.L. who was willing. This is actually the story of the women who were willing and the men who were weak. I think it's funny that this is held up as the example of female leadership. The actual truth of the story is it's an example of how the weak triumph over the strong because of God's mercy when those who were called to do it will not do it. These men did not do the things that God told them to do. So he raised up others to do it that would shame them. Now, the story goes like this. Sisera marches out towards Megiddo. Megiddo is a famous battle site. And those big iron chariots (laughs) that were fierce, the tanks of the day, they got bogged down in Megiddo. Because although God wants you to show up on the battlefield, it's something that falls from heaven that always gives victory. The Bible says that it began to rain. Judges 5 and verse 4. Let's read that. O Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook and... The heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. I want you to know that when faithfulness rises up from the earth, heaven always responds. To every revelation that you get in your life, 
A response is demanded from you. Now that you know what you know, something is required of you. And when you move, heaven responds. This is why so many people have been touched in an altar call. They got a revelation of something about God. They began to move on the earth towards it and God responded from heaven to meet them there. How fragile is a raindrop? Have any of you ever been killed by one? Been killed and resurrected? My testimony, pastor, is that when I was two, a raindrop hit me. And I've never been the same since. So Sarah was not defeated by the great armies of Israel. He was defeated by fragile raindrops that fell from heaven. Because even what seems insignificant and fragile, when it is sent from heaven and it unites in unity, has an overwhelming force on the enemy. That rain softened the ground. And the soft ground trapped those iron heavy chariots. And all the Israelites had to do was walk over and put the sword to their trapped enemy. It was never even a battle so sad that the chief general in it needed his security blanket to go with him. And in the battle, Sisera is not killed. Where does Sisera run? He runs to the tents of Eber, the compromiser. Where does the enemy find a refuge? He always finds a refuge among the compromisers. They don't show up on the day of battle. They're Christians in name only, but they don't do anything that Christians do except in the home of a weak compromiser was one righteous woman. And she triumphed over a nation with a tent spike. One of the funniest verses in all of the Bible. It's so repetitive. There he fell dead, dead he fell there. (laughs) Oh, thanks for clearing that up. And that's not at all what we're talking about. In this story, we find out that some showed up and some didn't. Their leadership was divided and so they were divided. I want you to understand, anytime I ever level an accusation against the American church, I am first and foremost talking about pastors. I'm talking about me and I'm talking about my peers. Because as leaders go, the congregation will go. Congregations have raised up for themselves teachers that tickle their itching ears, that say you're a champion even if you stay at home. I want to show you something that is revealing here. Pick up with me in verse 4. 15. No, verse 9. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. Deborah had a heart that is after God's, and her heart was with those who willingly showed up and volunteered. God's army is a volunteer army. But this begs the question, If the nation is at stake, if the plans and goals of God are at stake, why would some volunteer and some not? This is where we pick up with verse 15. 
the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, rushing after him into the valley. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. But did you stay? Um, why did you stay among the campfires to hear the whistling of the flocks? In the district of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan and Dan. Why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives, and so did Naphtali on the heights of the field. Some risked their lives and some stayed home. Why did Reuben stay home? Oh, he was searching his heart. That sounds like a good thing, huh? You ever told a Christian that you needed something like now? And he said, you know, I'll, uh, um, uh, I'll pray about it. And what that meant was I will stall you until the need has passed. How would you feel if your son was bleeding out on the floor and you asked somebody for help and they said, you know, I'll pray about it. So many things God's already told us to do and we say we'll pray about it. Today we're going to look at baptism. And we're going to look at baptism, something that God has already commanded. But how many are just praying about it, you know? As if it's optional. The commands of God are optional. If your life did not change when you got wet, then it was no better than taking a shower. If when you went under that water, it buried a sinful life and you came out and you have been walking a new life in Christ since that moment, it was the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It was symbolic of salvation. But most people that I know that got baptized just got wet. A lot of them, it was done while they were so small that they barely remember it. Good thing their parents saved that certificate. That's all they'll ever get from it. Their certificate. Reuben was searching his heart. In all of his reasoning, he reasoned God out. Reuben procrastinated until the battle passed. I could picture Reuben running along after Deborah the next week. Deborah, Deborah. Did I miss the battle? Reuben, you missed the war. Oh, well, I was praying. Yes, that sounds so saintly, except it's an excuse for your pathetic cowardness. A man that knows the good he ought to do and does not do it sins, whether he's praying about it or not. Oh, that's a harsh word, isn't it? And yet we know exactly, because we've lived it many times, me included, I'm in the post office and the Lord says, speak to that woman. I'm like, oh, oh my goodness. Jesus, Lord, Lord, I just ask that you help me, that you give me the right word. He already says that he's going to. I ask that you give me the right words, Lord, that strength would well up in me, Lord, that I know exactly what to say. Oh, praise God, she got in her car and drove off. Oh, well, I guess it wasn't God's will. Or you've become a petunia picker. A dandelion, a candied apple Christian. You have learned to cloak your disobedience in religious language so that it is more palatable. 
The kingdom of God has never been advanced by men like Reuben. I'm searching my heart, you know. I'm searching my heart. Well, you search hard enough, you'll identify the wickedness that has caused you to sit on your salvation while so few do the work that was destined for so many. How many lost out there are? Can we say that the world's difficult? Good God. Four of you think the world's difficult. Where do the rest of you live? Can we say that the world is difficult? Then there's enough work to go around. How long are we going to search our heart and in our reasoning reason God out so that in actuality we don't have to do anything? You believe He saved you for a purpose. How long do we say we're looking for that purpose before you can acknowledge the parts of it that you found? And how about Dan? Dan stayed with his ships. You know, God wants me to protect my livelihood. Me and mine first. I mean, God wants me to have a good job. Well, what about the people that are out there dying, losing their lives and their jobs? See, it's always somebody else who's calling to go do the difficult, isn't it? And we, we're masters at talking about our own insecurities. And what happened to me to make me the way that that I am? At the end of the day, there's going to be a question, though. Did you show up for the battle or not? Remember, it was not your strength that caused you to win. What what won the battle? Raindrops that fell for innocent, little, fragile raindrops. God does not need our strength. He needs our willingness. Oh, my goodness. How about Asher? Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. Oh, he was so holy, he hid in a cave, a monastery, you know. Of course, there was a battle going on out there. And where was Asher on the day of battle? His cowardice had him concealed in a cove. Do you admire men like C.T. Studd that went around the world for Jesus? Do you admire men like David Livingstone that crossed Africa for Jesus? Are you excited when you hear that Charles Finney preached with fire? Do you like to quote Ravenhill and talk about his colossal intellect? Are you a follower of John and Charles Wesley that set the earth ablaze for Jesus? Where were you when they picked the fight? See, we have a part to play. So Christians are going to wave palm branches today, like pom-poms, Spencer, you know. Hercules, Hercules, Hercules. (laughs) Waving palm branches does not put you in the battle. The same people that waved the palm branches, what were they doing a few days later? Join him in his fight. He confers his kingdom upon the men that stand by him in his trials. He said, well, how do I stand by him in his trials? How do I join him in the fight? I can assure you, if you're honest with yourself, he's shown you at least one place. Start with that. Be faithful in the one thing he has shown you. And you know what I've learned? He'll show you a whole lot more. He'll overwhelm you. So that you go, I can't do it. And he goes, I know, but I can. I'll send the heavenly rains. Certainly Deborah never could have defeated Sisera, but God's reign could. 
Barack said, I'll go, but, but i got to take Abby with me. Brave Barack hiding behind Deborah. And we mistake him for the hero of the story. Said, no, 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 no. God said it, it'd be a woman. Deborah's the hero. No. It was a wife that wouldn't stand for the compromise in her own home, picked up a tent spike, and just like Abigail and Nabal, she lost no time in doing what was right. She put the enemy to death. Ladies, you're unhappy with your spouse? Get holy for God. Quit nagging. Quit fighting. Instead, just get right with God yourself. The laity got so right with God in Hezekiah's day that the priests repented. They were so ashamed of themselves that they repented. Perhaps this is why the Bible says you win him over even without words. Husbands, quit letting your wife do the heavy lifting. God designed it for you. She heard from God, but she was someone's wife before she was a leader. And we don't know anything about Lapidoth. I know almost all I need to know. I've met him a thousand times. He was probably hanging out by Dan's ships or in Asher's coves. Verse 19 is where this message begins to take shape for me. And you're like, praise God. Finally. Leaving sucketh and the curse of Maraz. Kings came. They fought. The kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. But they carried off no silver, no plunder. From the heavens the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. Deborah is singing this song, trying to inspire the unwilling. In verse 21, Then thundered the horse's hooves, galloping, galloping, go his mighty steeds. What a strange verse, 23. Curse. Maraz, said the angel of the Lord, curse its people bitterly because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. The woman is singing praises, trying to inspire the people with God's great victory, and there was an answer from the heavenlies. An angel of God pronounced a curse on the city of Maraz because while some went to war, they stayed home. See, they wanted, hear this, the aid of the Lord, but they did not want to aid the Lord. They wanted all the blessings of God, but they didn't want any responsibilities for God. Are you hearing me now? They probably proclaimed confessions of prosperity, but they denied their heavenly responsibility. There is a curse that falls upon those that know the good that they are supposed to do and do not do it. 
It's the curse of sin and death. Galatians makes it very clear that Jesus bears that curse for us, but how? Only when you get in Jesus and you know where He is, He's on the battlefield. He didn't stay home. Church, the curse of Miraz is maybe... I've been reading the Bible 21 years as a serious, spirit-filled student. I never noticed it, and it might be the most prevalent curse upon our nation. We claim all, we say, God bless America, don't we? on our money. It's in our songs. God bless America, but we never follow it up with America's responsibility to God. And the church has learned to do the same thing. Bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. You come to church to get blessed. Pastors teach you to receive a blessing. In their skinny jeans and lacy shirts. If you came here just to receive a blessing, then how is your heart any different than Simon the sorcerer? We have so watered this thing down that a pastor will say, with every eye closed and every head bowed, oh, yes, 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 there's a woman here. And She's had an abortion. And God says, don't you worry about it, honey. He's willing. He'll forgive you right now. As if that's all that's involved in this. But the same pastor doesn't stand up and say, there's a woman here who's committed murder, who has killed her child. And if you are willing as a murderer to come and fall at the feet of Christ and say, I deserve death. He will take the penalty of death from you. We don't say that anymore. We don't talk about our responsibilities. We want the blessing without any responsibility. We're hopping over the wall. We're going some way except through the narrow gate. Blessings, 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 but no obedience. Triumphal Sunday. Oh, I got my palm branches. I waved palm branches for many years. My pastor was a homosexual and my parents were not married and I was lost while we were doing it. But we waved palm branches well. I'm not against palm branches. You can look on our website for Matthew 21 and the triumphal entry. You'll find seven or eight messages. But I think we've talked about triumph without responsibility enough. I think it's time we look at what we're called to do. And we don't proclaim victory until we're actually in a couple battles, you know. Verse 24. Most blessed of women. Most blessed of women, BJL. The wife of Eber the Kenite. Most blessed of tent-dwelling women. Why? Because her husband was a loser. But she chose not to be. Because her husband was a compromiser. Maraz is a shirker of responsibility. Maraz is blessings without responsibility. But Eber the Kenite was the one that said, I just want to look like I get along and go along. But his wife wasn't willing to go with him. 
The enemy made a mistake. He went to the place where he thought he would find weakness, a backslidden woman. And instead, he found a champion of God. Oh, church, I hope you have ears to hear. You could be sitting here, a backslidden woman, but with one righteous act of faith could become a champion of God. It doesn't matter what you think you're lashed to. It doesn't matter what you think holds you back. Reuben was the firstborn. He was the strong. But Reuben just procrastinated till it went by. Zebulun and Naphtali are among the last you name when you name the sons of Israel. But they showed up. And isn't that just like God? He chooses those of us that got thrown out of school to go do the work while everybody else is hiding in their schools. Don't get me wrong. You should have the finest education you can get. And I hope all of you speak many languages. Hope all of you can write empirically and hold your own in the highest academic circles. But it seems to me that God has always taken the willing over the most prepared and best suited. This is not an excuse not to prepare. It's also not an opportunity to use your preparation as an excuse. Plans A through J failed. You're now in preparation. Oh, my goodness. The message was called Leaving Sukkoth. Leaving Sukkoth and the curse of Miraz. Let's move on to Sukkoth. Turn in the Bible to the right. You will find chapter 8. Oh, my goodness. He is using a double entendre. How could he use the word sucketh like that? Well, you understand it, don't you? We find a serious situation in Judges 8 to to set the setting for you. Gideon has been chasing down four Midianite kings. And Gideon started with a giant army, right? We started with a giant army, but what did God do? He sifted them. He sifted them based first on whether they wanted to be there or not. And then among those who wanted to be there, he sifted them by the way they drank. Oh man, if you can't learn to drink of God's river of delights, even when you're willing to show up on the battlefield, you're ineffective. You need heavenly rain. You have to wait in Jerusalem till you receive power from on high. And once you receive the power, you are fit to fight. I say wait on it, wait on it, travail for it, fight for it until you know that you have been touched from heaven. Gideon has now put to death two of the Midianite kings. He killed Zeb and he killed Orb. But Zeba and Zalmunna, not good names for your children, are still on the run. Gideon is now exhausted and he's hungry and we are in the 8th chapter and the 4th verse. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. 
Exhausted and yet what? Exhausted and yet what? You go meet real missionaries and you will find the most tired souls you've ever met. They are exhausted and yet they keep up the pursuit. You show me a well-fed, well-rested missionary and I will show you someone on vacation. But the ones that I know work harder, stay up later, go further, and last longer in the fight than anybody that you know. Have calluses on their hands, scars on their body. And for all of their work for the Lord, they might receive a special offering a year. They're on the battlefield. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of... Oh, you pretty little church people. He said to the men of... It's the Bible, you know. Give my troops some bread. They are worn out. What are they? Worn out. out. And I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. I'm tired. But I refuse to quit. If you won't go with me, at least what you can do is support me. Oh, man. They're wearied, exhausted. Makes you wonder why they call the place Sucketh, huh? Why is Sucketh called Sucketh? But the officials of Sucketh said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? To start with, there was only 300 of them. How much bread are we talking about? That is hilarious. I bet they went home and sucketh and ate steak. But they can't find 300 dinner rolls for the guys that are actually doing the work. Oh, now we're on the American church again, aren't we? Our pastors drive Escalades. They have the finest parking spots, the nicest suits, fat salaries, well-rested. But the men who are actually doing the work are begging for dinner rolls. Does that feel right to you? It's not enough that some won't go to the battlefield, but then we don't support those who do. This is a missions church. 40% of what we get, we send to the mission field because I don't want them to eat dinner rolls. But it occurred to me in a prayer meeting this weekend that there is something that is more important than dinner rolls. See, when I read this, I thought, we have to raise more money for missions. And we will. (laughs) I was more fed this weekend by Pentecostals than I've been fed in a long time. You know why? When we walked through the door, they said, let's pray. (laughs) That's all they wanted to do. We went to bed at 2 in the morning, we woke up at 7, and we prayed some more. 
And the more we prayed, the more I began to not feel tired and exhausted. The more I felt like I was in hot pursuit of the enemy. The more I felt like I didn't care who gave me bread or didn't give me bread, I was going to get the job done. And it occurred to me, not only did we not give, we don't pray. Saints, there are so many ways to get in the game. Some of you are going to spend your life exhausting yourself for the advancement of the gospel in every corner of the globe. Some of you are going to finance those that go, and some of you are going to do all of the above, but you're going to commit your life to intercessory prayer. I'm telling you that there was a man, and while he was praying, felt like his hands were stretching to the other side of the earth, and I began to see people in the ancient Persian kingdom coming to know Jesus. And it occurred to me that if you want to live in Succoth, it's an easy thing to do. You don't go to battle. You don't pray for those who do. And you don't pay for those who do. And then you deserve to live in a town called Succoth. If you find yourself all too close to the city limits of Succoth today, there's an easy solution. And it is not putting a check in our offering box, although I'm not going to discourage that practice. It doesn't happen as much as I would like it to sometimes. It really is you do the first right thing that you know God has called you to do. This is a baptism message, and it's the triumphal entry. So how do we get from the curse of Miraz and the land of Succoth to that? Turn with me to 1 Kings. Actually, put it on the screen. 1 Kings 18, verse 21. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. You see, the people of Succoth wanted to wait and see how the battle ended before they picked their side. Because if they could see how it ended, they could say, you know, I really was always on that that side to start with. But on Mount Carmel, Elijah, by himself, working against hundreds of false prophets said, no, while we are the underdog and there is no visible sign of success, you pick your side now. I'm saying you can't wait till the battle's won to join the winning team. You know, I always feel bad for those guys that they get their hats and shirts printed and then they play the game and they lose because it's like a monument to their failure. But it's also a monument to their commitment. They never intended to lose. Friends, sometimes we lose, but it will not be for a lack of my commitment. Oh, church, that we could get our commitment right. How about Joshua? In Joshua 24, he says plainly to the people, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. The one thing in life-changing ministries that you do not have an excuse for is you can't say I'm only doing as my pastor does. Because your pastors are as committed as anybody could. 
I think I've made 60 international trips in the last three years. I would call that a commitment, wouldn't you? I've never stayed in a five-star hotel. And I don't ever plan to. But I've stayed on a lot of dirt floors. And I've eaten a lot of seriously nasty food. Church, I'm saying the battle just depends on who's willing to fight. And if on this day you cannot fight, then you can pay. And if you can't pay on this day, because like me, you're broke and tired, you can pray. So still, Eric, I love you, but that's got nothing to do with baptism. And did you forget its triumphal entry? Go with me to 2 Kings. 2 Kings 5. Matthew, you might want to make your way up here. Don't you dare tune me out. <laughs> Don't you do it. We're a small church. I will call your name. Some of the guests said, thank God he doesn't know my name. <laughs> we prophesy in this church he might just tell me. In 2 Kings 5, starting in verse 8. When Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Don't you love Elijah? He doesn't suffer from performance anxiety at all. He's not sitting there crying about his childhood or his lack. You have no idea whether he was a wealthy man, a poor man, a fat man, a tall man, a skinny man. Do know he was a bald man. He said, there's a problem? There is a problem in Israel? If it's in Israel, that's my responsibility, see, because I'm a part of the family of God. And king, you can whine and tear your robes and all, but that's not going to solve a problem, is it? Say, you know what? Bring your problem to me. And what was the problem? Oh, a warlord named Naaman. He had this little incurable disease called leprosy. Leprosy is something you never see in the United States anymore. It is so horrifying to us that we have leper colonies for those people over there. But Elijah said, bring him to me. See, he felt like God had made an investment in him. You know what defines sucketh? What defines sucketh is people that are not very invested in the kingdom of God. God has invested in them. They have the curse of Miraz. He has aided them, but they're not going to aid him. They're not going to go with the Lord against the mighty problems. They just want what they can get from the Lord. They're entitled to it. Elijah felt like God had invested in him, and so he said, <laughs> bring the problem. Where is your heart, church? See, I think we were born for problems. In the worship service today, 
we solve problems. Didn't we, Lynette? We're going to watch cancer fall. You know, I get it. I do. But the mission field changes you. And I came back from Matamoros, Mexico one time during Hurricane Dolly. And the church here was saying, Lord, turn that hurricane. Turn that hurricane, Lord. Don't let us be in our brand new houses with our generators and our flashlights and our stored food. We could never make it through a hurricane. Send it to those people in Mexico. Now, that's not what they're saying. They're saying, just turn it. Well, turn it where? And see, I was in Mexico during Hurricane Dolly. And I watched the water rise. And I watched the people suffer. And it developed a different attitude in me. I'm like, Lord, dissipate that hurricane. But if not, oh, let it come. We can handle it. Not a problem at all. We'll huddle tighter. We'll get closer and we will prevail in the name of God and use it for a chance to minister. You need to decide today whether you're going to avoid problems and see them as somebody else's or whether you say, bring them here. I have the solution. Some of you live in Succoth and are under the curse of Miraz, so you don't have the solution. And I get that. That's like the leper who's coming to Elijah. When Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and you will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elijah's house. Elijah sent a messenger to say to him, How insulting. Oh, don't act like it's not insulting. How complex are your problems? Spence, you had some big problems? Yeah. Spence got a little girl born with half a heart, but she's still alive. How big are your problems? Lynette, a few minutes ago, how big were your problems? I can't breathe. Big problems. How big are your problems, Dee Dee? They're big. Some people say cancer and people wilt all around them. We stand up and say, we can handle it. Elijah didn't go to Naaman. He sent him a message. I want to tell you why. I don't have anything, personally, that is going to fix anything. But I have the message that will. I have the God who will. This is so you don't confuse the man with the anointing on the man. So he sends him a message, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry, said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned away and went off in a rage. You know what is really angering in the midst of our sin? And then, Pastor, I lost, lost my house. And then I, after I lost my house, you know, my car broke. And, and after my car broke, I couldn't, couldn't pay the note. And, 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 then, and, then, and we described the most complex problem. It's a game. 
We have more problems than you have solutions. This is like Reuben. Reuben's sitting there searching his heart. He's finding more problems than he has solutions. And we despise the simplicity of the solution. The solution is repent. Go get in that river. You know where you should be. Obedience brings a blessing. You want God to fix your problem without you taking responsibility for the problem. And he won't do it. Because that problem was meant to drive you to accept your responsibility. Are you hearing me? This is what's wrong with saying every head bowed and every eye closed. This is what's wrong with speaking to someone who has committed an abortion and act like they've not done anything wrong. This is what's wrong. I want the blessing of God, but I don't want any responsibilities from God. I would like to be saved and stay in suck it. Friends, there are a couple brave souls today. They're going down into the water. What is the water, Jordan? It's just a symbol. It's just a symbol of the pledge of an obedient heart that says, I want to show up on the battlefield. I'm tired of living in Succoth. I want to wash off the curse of Maraz. It's time. He turned away and went off in a rage, it says. Naban's servant went to him, servant went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, if he had proposed an expensive solution, a multi-part plan, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? I'm telling you that whatever your problem is, the answer is repentance and obedience. A hundred percent of the time. It makes my job so easy as a pastor. All he does is preach on sin. We'll stop sinning. Repent and be obedient. We'll all be good. Don't like that. We'll go to another church. Go to Succoth if you want. I prefer not to live there. I was once there. I got born again. And when I got born again, I was through with Succoth. Peter called it an empty way of life. A flood of dissipation. I don't want it. I know the answer to the problem. It's obedience. So you don't understand, Pastor. I was obedient once before. We're called to walk in obedience, friends. Step after step, you never get to stop. It's not once obedient, always obedient. It's walking in obedience as evidence of the saving faith that is in your life. Are you tracking with me, church? Let us stand to our feet.